You're listening to the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Today, we have two amazing guests, James Watson and Justin Perry from Immerse.io. Justin is the co-founder and chief operating officer and leads product strategy for Immerse. As a founder, he designed and led product development of the Immerse platform from scratch. He now oversees the delivery of all technology and VR content across the organization. Justin has 20 years experience creating and growing B2C and B2B products from startups to global organizations. He has developed and launched online platforms, websites, mobile products across the world, and joined Immerse from his role as global director of the internet yellow pages for Yell Group. The Immerse virtual enterprise platform enables enterprises to create, scale, and measure virtual reality training content and programs. The platform enables enterprises to look at training and assessment in a completely different way, providing the tools to help maximize human performance, resulting in a more engaged, better equipped, and safer workforce. If you want to learn more, you can visit Immerse.io. Guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks, Alan. (laughs) Hey. So you guys are in beautiful, sunny, warm UK. How's it going over there? Um... Well, it was very sunny until last week, actually, with the sort of slightly freakish uh, weather that we've been having. But today is cold. Is British grey. Yeah. British grey. Oh, wow. Well, we'll just assume it's beautiful and sunny. <laughs> so I, I got to let's get digging in here. So I've had a chance to try out the Immerse platform. It's really amazing. You're completely immersed. And I, the demo that you guys did for us, we were inside of a submarine. And not only go into it, but interact with all the bits of the software or sorry, of the submarine and start to kind of learn parts of how do I make some things work. And the great thing about it is you guys were there every step of the way, but one of you was in VR and the other one was on a tablet or a computer. Talk to us just how did Immerse kind of come to be? Um, well, we've been in the uh, training space quite a long time. <clears throat> we, we weren't initially in VR. We actually delivered our training applications via desktop but uh, they were always multi-user. So we would be tying together people from somewhere in maybe even Kazakhstan, some oil and gas training that we did with trainers that may be in Iraq or in the UK or wherever that might be. And that was all done in a sort of virtual world. So it's a little bit like the old Second Life, if people remember that. So it's a powerful proposition, but it's still a little bit difficult to sell. So with the advent of the headsets, or the latest generation of headsets at least, we made the move uh, into into VR. And a lot of the services that we built there um, just kind of immediately made sense. And we got a lot of traction very quickly. We effectively then pivoted the whole company to be a full-on VR training platform. Uh, we re- rebuilt a load of those services, especially for VR, because there were obviously some, some optimizations that we needed to make. And so we find ourselves where we are today. And just in terms of what you said there, uh, Alan, obviously um, that multi-user piece and being able to have people in the space together and um, in VR, but also in the browser is still a big part of what we do. But uh, we've broadened out from there as well, because obviously not all training requirements are going to be satisfied by that. So, um, so we target single player, we look at data, we look at the creation of that uh, content, we look at integrating that with enterprise systems. What are some of the examples? So obviously there's a, a submarine one. Is that, was that a military client? Yeah, that's for a, a company called Kinetic. So based here in the UK, they're a, they're a defense technology company. They work very closely with the armed services in the UK. And yeah, that's working with them to create, uh, as you experienced, a, an interactive submarine. There we've modeled a few parts of the submarine, actually, because uh, the focus was on team-based training. 
So the idea is that you can have, obviously a, a submarine isn't run by a single person. So if you're going to run those team-based training exercises, you need to account for a number of different roles. Some of those people will be using uh, sort of consoles with lots of buttons and uh, joysticks and, and all those sorts of things. Others will be more communication-based, so they'll be telling other people what to do. There'll be more manual tasks around uh, operating equipment and machinery. And in order to run through the emergency operating procedures that, uh, that you need to on a, in a submarine scenario, you've got to join those things together. And so working with Kinetic, we brought that to life in uh, across a few of those different procedures. What we find, I guess, is from a different industry sectors where any any sector that has some sort of uh, procedural training, sort of health and safety, risk mitigation element to it, our technology is relevant and VR as a training tool is, is relevant. That's an example in defence. And then we also are working within uh, healthcare with GE Healthcare. So that's you know, looking at the ability to train radiologists on CT scanners. Uh, we've created a complete CT scanner in virtual reality, and the whole process can take up to an hour for a radiologist to go through in VR, which is you know incredible level of detail. Um, and so that has the relevance because you can't get access to CT scanners. So you can look at that in a when the equipment is too hard to get access to, you don't want to take that equipment offline. It's relevant. And then we also work within the energy sector with Shell, where that's looking at health and safety and risk mitigation. So any industry where there's risk, if you can put someone in a virtual reality training environment, well, you're recreating that risk, but actually there is no risk to that individual. So sector-wise, we go across any number of sectors. It's really more the need of that sector that sort of defines where virtual reality training and our our platform is, is relevant. So it's pretty broad is kind of the the ultimate message um, from a sort of sectors that we work with. Let's talk about results just for a second here. So what was that point where you just went, oh my God, this is, the, this is what we need to do next? And what, how did that precipitate? There is the key thing. You can understand the minute you put a headset on yourself. I, I hadn't experienced anything until the, the early uh, DK1 and the minute you put that on, you understand that you are interacting with these 3D environments in a way that was previously impossible. Um, presenting something on a 2D interface is effectively sort of abstracting it away from the manner in which you interact with that in real life. You are not actually picking that thing up. You're using a mouse or you're using the buttons on the keyboard to pick that thing up. And there's all sorts of obviously nuance engaged in, in, in you genuinely interacting. So instead of um, having to create a complex input system, as I say, using a mouse or keyboard controls, you, know, you put the headset on and you're just there. And if it's a nicely designed uh, bit of VR, then the sort of barrier to entry in terms of use and user experiences can be, can be really low. So you, you, you don't need to be a gamer. You don't need to, you don't need to sort of um, abstract away that interaction it's all there, and it's like you're interacting with the real world. As I say, if it's if it's well designed, so I think that was the key thing that did it for us. And then we put some of the 3D scenarios that we'd already created into the hands of prospective customers, and the response to them was just so dramatically different. You know, they took the headset off, and everybody that knows works in VR will, will see this all the time. You know, that sort of just sense of these people being blown away, and 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 the whole potential for this medium opening up in front of them. You know, we, we used to see it all the time. 
I think, to be quite honest, that was enough to, to encourage us to sort of make that leap. We didn't do it straight away. We got a couple of projects up and running. But I would say the kernel was in that sort of moment of realizing both ourselves and seeing it in our customers that this just changed the way in which you could interact with the, with, with the 3D. It really is one of those things that you have to see it to believe it or even just to buy into it. There's been a lot of hype around VR and AR. And as an industry, we've done a really good job at hyping the crap out of it. But when it comes down to it, until you put that headset on someone's face, it's very esoteric. It's a very visceral experience being in VR and doing that. So we'll go back to the submarine for a second. You have a group of people maybe who've never worked together who need to go and operate a you know a multi-billion dollar submarine, putting them into a virtual space to get them used to interacting in that space. You can simulate the sounds. You can simulate the, the feeling of being there. You can simulate all of the actions that they're going to take. And it builds real muscle memory. Where do you see the limit to this? Is there some, are there some things that don't lend themselves to this? To VR? Yeah, all the time. I mean, we take every single project that we work on because we, um, just to be clear, we build content on top of our own platform as well, because obviously not all uh, businesses have that resource internally. So we do do a fair bit of content creation and we'll take every project on its own terms. You know, it has to live or die on, on its own business case. And very often, you know, it won't stack up. It's, it's really as simple as that. I mean, I'm sure there, even in, even in the instances where we can't make the business case stack up, I'm sure you could also, uh, you could still create a meaningful VR experience. But if it's not going to move the dial within an organization, if it's not going to do what it needs to do ultimately in terms of sort of ROI and, and impact on employee performance, then we're not going to do it and we're not going to recommend it. We get, I mean, we get a lot of inquiries around soft skills. Can I train my sales force to deal better with difficult customers or can I train against unconscious bias or, or things like that? And and I think there's some validity to use VR for that. I think at the moment, the challenge is around the uh, intelligence or the AI of the avatars you use and trying to avoid sort of that sort of, um, you know, slightly odd feeling of looking at uh, someone who doesn't quite fit to what we expect from a you know human form. So there's a lot of those discussions that come in at the moment. And I think they are going to take a little bit more um, development from a technology perspective to really make that more meaningful. Whereas if you think of the slightly more procedural focused uh, training, so the ability to go onto an offshore oil platform and run through a health and safety uh, process that you have to take every two months to make sure you're still got the right accreditation to operate that piece of equipment, that fits in a much more simplistic way. When we start getting into that sort of behavioral soft skills place, it's more of a stretch. It's not to say there aren't some really good examples out there. It's just pushing what VR is really good for at this stage of its development. Yeah, and we, we, um, we actually are working on a project at the moment around soft skills. But the reason we were happy to move forward with it, as James says, we're not, we're not selling that proactively. But the project that we're currently working on got a green light on the understanding that it was a piece of research. It's effectively, you know, R&D to see what is possible within the current technology available. And one of the things that we have found is that if you are looking to sort of have a, a pretty realistic interaction with a non-human character, let's say in the context of a sales conversation, the technology just isn't there. Mm. From an AI perspective, from the kind of fluidity of the interaction and the experience, you can put something together that works, 
but it's not going to be the thing that's going to make a difference in terms of in terms of sales training so i think it's going to come for sure mm. and there was some fantastic presentation uh well as part of the keynote at um at oc6 last week which which i was at by michael uh abrash who's chief scientist at, at oculus he was he was talking about some of the things they're looking at there in terms of r d and you know that they are really exciting around you know representation of humans uh and so on that combined with advances in, in AI and speech recognition, all those kinds of things, we will get there, but we're just a way off. And so we as a company are focused, as James says, when we when we go out to the market, we're talking about things that are really about interacting with the sort of material world process mm. and, and so on. As part of my trip last week to Orlando, I got to go to the University of Central Florida's learning lab. It's called Learn Live. And one of the things they showed me was they had me talk to a 2D screen that was 3D images of school kids. And I started having conversations with them. And they started having conversations back to me in very, very human-like ways. Mm. So I would ask one child, what do you want to do today? Well, I don't know. Like, maybe we should read a book. And then I said to one kid, oh, I'm from Canada. Do you like maple syrup? I mean, I'm trying to throw them curveballs. Mm. And the kid goes, well, my mom says it's too sugary for me. <laughs> like it was just this moment where my mouth was open. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And what it turns out, it's actually not AI driven. It's actually puppeteered by a human. And they use a voice changer so that there's a human answering the questions. And they, they're able to pick which child to answer the questions from. So one person's able to replicate five students' huh. attitudes. Right, right. And each student had a different attitude. It was just this kind of mind-melting. I thought it was AI. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the future of AI. We're here. We finally made it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then they revealed the secret. And I was like, no. <laughs> no. Old school skills, huh? <laughs> yeah, but they, they've managed to make a platform that scales so they can provide this teacher. It was for teacher training to teach uh, teachers how to deal with a classroom full of multi-personalities. So one kid is very goth and very dark, and, but very smart. And then you have another kid who's loud and just distort, disruptive to the class. And how do you kind of manage that classroom dynamic? Yeah. It was really incredible, but huh. I really thought it was AI. I was like, oh, they, we are, we've reached the future. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> I think we're not there yet. <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Being able to have intelligent conversations with AI agents. How long do you figure that's going to take before it before it's real? It feels right. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, going back to what um, Michael Abrash was saying, it was it's, we're actually quite a long way off. Yeah, I'm thinking ten years. Yeah, he was talking in those terms, and he was using a theory, the theory, name of which I can't remember. Maybe something like Hof, Hofsteiner's theory which is that everything takes longer than you think it's going to take even taking into consideration that theory Hofstetter's theory, Hofstetter's theory. That's the, yeah. everything is going to take longer even if you take into account Hofstetter's theory yes Hofstetter's theory well done yeah yeah I, I couldn't remember the name of it yeah it was a really great talk if if people are listening if you haven't watched the keynotes from uh Oculus Connect 6 uh to the 2019 version of Oculus's big conference the opening keynotes are just chock full of amazingness. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I think it's I think it's a way off. But the thing is, one of the things that we're often trying to do is just when we're, we're having conversations with um, you know with customers, with the market, we're just trying to get people focused on where we are here and now. Mm. Because you know, there's there's so much power in what's already out there. 
um, particularly because the the hardware is is developing so quickly. Uh, you know, we're now at the point where we've got these untethered headsets and they're super lightweight, and they don't have all of the uh, technical complexities or uh, support complexities that went with the the early model. Um, <laughs> I've got my Oculus Quest sitting right in front of me. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's a great bit of kit, and it, obviously, it's not the only untethered headset, but it's it's the one that's getting the most coverage. And we just we just try and get people focused on the here and now because. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about the here and now, because I think it's right. And to quote Ori Inbar, as technology people, we're always looking to the future. He goes, but the technology we have right now is good enough for almost everything we want to do. Yeah. So companies are already starting to roll this out. But are you finding this, because we're finding this on this side, is that companies are still stuck in that, hey, let's pilot it, let's check and see, let's go slow. When other companies are saying, hey, we've done the pilots, let's go and they're starting to scale it out. And then you run into different challenges like device management, security protocols, that sort of thing. Yeah. But what I've been preaching from the rooftops is start now, make some mistakes, get going. Mm -hmm. And so that when this really starts to take off, which is starting now, you'll be ready to do it. Yeah, we find there's a mix, to be honest. Um, and that mix has probably become more even over the past, I'd say six to eight months. So you're right, there are still the, the customers out there who are thinking, well, I just want to dip my toe in because I don't want to overcommit and just see how this technology might work for me. I'm still not quite sure about it. But we are finding there's a lot more sort of large organizations out there who have well and truly sort of through that POC phase. And indeed, some of the bigger organizations who've done multiple POCs. And they're now at the stage, a bit like you know, you're talking about there, of like, well, actually, how do I make this into something meaningful? How do I actually push this out across a global organization? measure it, make it secure, integrate it with all my systems. So there's definitely been a shift. There are still plenty of people out there who want to do a POC and you can understand why. We're talking to one organization at the moment and literally they just need to get the senior buy-in of their C-suite to go, okay, I've tried it. It's a, it's a relevant training exercise for our business. That's really good. I get it. Let's push this on. So I think POC will always have a role with certain organizations, perhaps slightly more risk averse. But then there's also a lot of guys out there who, who are beyond that stage and are looking for something a little bit more sort of enterprise ready. One of the things that can be a bit frustrating, and it, it was there at the start, it hasn't got away, is in some instances, the inability to self-apply. And by that, I mean, you, you know, we've got a whole different suite of things we could show people in VR. But it, there's times when we come up, we, we have a conversation with a customer and it doesn't matter how many different things we show them in VR, they can't apply it to their own business. And so therefore that forces you to have to build something specific for them. And I'm assuming at some point we will get beyond that because one process, if it's something simple, for instance, like pulling levers or turning dials, pressing buttons, you would just assume that people can understand how that can translate to their own industry. But it's simply not the case in many instances. I think that's what leads you to those POCs is, well, yeah, that's fine. I get that. But that's not our process and that's not our equipment or our machinery. And it seems a bit funny thing. It's, it, you know, even if it's in the same industry, they're like, well, that's that doesn't work like our machine. And you're like, yes, but it could. Yeah. <laughs> Just give us the CAD files and we'll make it work like that. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of understand it. But at the same time, it seems to me that you introduce a step there that sort of doesn't kind of need to be there and often that first step that POC exactly as James said it is just about a relatively 
the sort of soft objective of getting buy-in. It's not about hard data in that first instance. Yeah, I think to to put a quote there, it's no longer about a technology problem. This is an adoption problem. Yeah. And we're at the point where technology works. We've proven use cases. So let's let's shift gears a little bit because I really want to dig into, you mentioned earlier about these POCs and onboarding companies and some things working better than others. What are some of the ways you're measuring success? What are the goals, key performance indicators, ROI? So how are you measuring those for a company like Shell, for example? Like what are the measurements around uh, ROI? It kind of depends, again, on the use case. In the case of uh, Shell, which I can't really talk too much about because I'm not allowed to, but it is in the assessment space, which in and of itself is a little bit different to training, obviously. There are some hard metrics that need to come out of a piece of assessment, particularly if it's related to some form of regulation. There, you can capture potentially the sort of killer bits of data um, in a relatively straightforward manner, which is simply that um, sort of text-based output, the user did this, user did X, Y, Z, and achieved this result, which is the kind of stuff that often get pushed into a learning management system at the sort of highest level. Um, But at the same time, what we're looking to offer alongside that kind of more straightforward learning objective output is also the ability to record everything that 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 user did. So we sort of built that in as a core platform functionality. All of the data that gets sent by the user, all of the data generated by the user in a session, which for us accounts to 30 messages per user per second, can effectively be stored as a sort of file and played back as if you were there the first time round. So it's not a video, it's a kind of interactive 360 degree data experience. That uh, gives you something way beyond just those learning objectives. It gives you the absolute concrete proof that this person did this thing. It's highly auditable. It sits as a file that shows them in uh, six degrees of freedom completing this piece of regulatory training. And then obviously out of that, there's all sorts of potential um, insight that you can start to gather. And I think uh, one of the things for us is that we often think about is in many instances, you can, you can prove the ROI through those simple learning objectives, but there is more to be had there. There's more to be discovered. And there are more ways in which you can define, firstly, the sort of the performance of the user, but secondly, the value of the training itself. But I would say we're still on that journey ourselves as a company of being able to clearly highlight what can this data show us? And we can only really do that by building these experiences out with people, getting lots of users through them and, and analyzing that data. Yeah, and, and that ROI can be used quite broadly. But if you think about having it as an audit trail and the ability to go back and something goes wrong and the ability to go back and prove to overarching governing body yes that person took that training therefore we did the right things to ensure we tried to mitigate that risk well that could be a saving of hundreds of thousands if not millions yeah for sure just based on the ability to be able to capture that and and demonstrate it so you know you can be that and then you can go kind of the other way where it's a bit more sort of as we'd expect ROI to play out and say for example with the work we've done with DHL which is creating VR training for cargo loading for warehouse workers. So the ability to stack a cargo container as efficiently as possible. So, you know, part of the ROI coming out of that is not just around, okay, there are less gaps in that cargo container. Therefore, we're shipping more cargo and making more profit from it. Well, actually, the ROI to them is also going through to, well, 
by creating this VR training, our staff are actually more engaged. Um, they're in effect enjoying the training process. And ultimately that leads to increased staff retention. So instead of the average tenure of those warehouse workers being 12 months, well, actually you can extend that out to 15 months. So suddenly- And that is, you know what? That alone is a reason to start using this technology, that right there, yeah. because we're in a we're in a time right now where more people are retiring than we are able to retrain and reskill for, especially in trades and skills that are hands on or in warehouses. Most kids in America don't want to work in a warehouse. They don't want to work in a factory. They want to be YouTube influencers, which is cool, but not everybody can be a YouTube influencer. Yeah. So, being able to make the training fun, exciting. Are you starting to see or uh, get requests for gamification of these experiences as well? Yeah, uh, so, so the DHL experience actually in, does in, incorporate gamification because um, as, as James said, it's a, it's a box stacking exercise and for a company like DHL, if they've got air in their uh, planes, then it's, gonna, it's costing them. So they have to be super efficient with this stuff. There's all sorts of different rules around how packages should be handled. Two things, actually, in order to make the experience more fun and turn it into almost a sort of Tetris type experience, we introduced a point system that had all kinds of multipliers based on you following these various rules. I want to do it now. See, like, this is how training should be in the world. It's fun. People want to put it on and try it and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that that gamification, um, it makes people want to do it and they take the headset off and they want to have another go. And, you know, we see that all the time, particularly with DHL. But also, uh, the interesting thing is that the, the the data that you're generating out of that gamification, the point system, gives you an insight into that learner performance that previously wasn't available, because they would just be they'd just be doing this in a warehouse manually stacking it. Somebody might be watching them and scoring them, but you wouldn't get like that level of insight into the different techniques that they used uh, and the different at the degree to which they were following the appropriate process. So it's got a bit of a double win there, really. And it's also a big, there's a global leaderboard associated with that as well, Alan. So Of course there is. <laughs> Somebody's got to be first. They could be competing <laughs> against their colleague, you know, someone in New Orleans competing against someone in Manila. And yeah. suddenly there's that little bit of competition, healthy competition, of course. Oh, I love it. And I, I'm, sure, I'm assuming you guys have some team stuff as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The team Manila is crushing it. <laughs> Literally is that, yeah. I was going to just say, I'm going to add one more thing actually on ROI because it is such a hot topic in the space. The, the, another example that we've got is with uh, with GE and the CT scanner work that we did. There, if you look at that, it's a slightly different use case or ROI in that these CT scanners are incredibly expensive, obviously. Um, we dug out a UK business case for a CT scanner uh, that recently that, um, that saw that initial investment of the machinery at, at 1.8 million in and of itself, which would give you obviously one training asset. And then on top of that, it's circa £400,000 per year to maintain. You've got to have somewhere to, to, to house that scanner, which then involves uh, protecting stuff against magnetic waves. So you can say there's going to be like another million pounds in cost there. So in the first year alone, you're looking at sort of three to three and a half million pounds just to get that CT scanner in place. And then on top of that, there's all of the costs of obviously sending people to that specific site, uh, locating them across the country or maybe even across the world, the cost of a trainer to be there in person, blah, blah, blah. All these things add up. Uh, and so in a single year, you can see that the cost of running a single uh, site is, is going to be 
incredibly expensive. And uh, in the instance of the training that we built for them, you know, it was it was very very straightforward to to, to put the business case for that together because you are effectively, firstly, you're uh, you're removing the need for that physical hardware, but you're also allowing an unlimited number of people to carry out this training at the same time. So that's a five to eight million pound savings. Mm-hmm. So translate that into American dollars. You're looking at six to ten, call it. Yeah. yeah, six to ten million in savings. Now, what are the costs associated with that? So, how much does it cost to build it? How much does it cost to scale it? To get VR headsets on everybody's head, like just ballpark. Like, what is the ballpark cost for everything included to deliver the same kind of level that you would be normally paying six to ten million dollars for? Well, I mean, it's going to depend on the number of users from a sort of hardware and a, certainly in terms of our platform. So, our platform works on a kind of effectively a, a per user basis, which would be in line with most, you know, with with standard SaaS. Uh, licensing, I guess, if you sort of use that as a benchmark. Um, and then obviously the the hardware, if you were going to do something on a Quest, that's coming in at a thousand pounds or I think it's a thousand dollars as well, isn't it, for the enterprise version of that. So how many users are you going to have there? So that's a fairly simple sort of sum. And then in terms of the content uh, creation, that will vary uh, wildly. I'm not going to talk specifically about the costs for, uh, for GE, but um, you can get, I mean, if we, if we use a really broad range as we would see it um, in terms of the kinds of projects that we've done, they tend to span from somewhere between uh, 50,000 to, let's say, 500,000, depending on the complexity or, and the range and the depth of, of the content that you're creating. So it's a broad, it's a very broad spectrum indeed. And so it's very difficult to sort of say categorically. Um, and it is still relatively expensive. Um, and those costs are coming down because obviously people are getting creative with those um, with the tools for creating that content. But um, I think once you add those numbers up, you're still coming in at an order of magnitude lower than the cost that you outline there with the, for the um, real world scanner. Yeah, I mean, I- well, here let, let's just do the back of the napkin calculation here. You got a thousand employees, content's half a million, call it a million, right? So you got a million, then hardware's thousand employees called a million dollars in hardware. Yeah. And that's giving one to everybody, which you're not going to do anyway, because you don't need that. Yeah. And then a thousand licenses. So another call it a million. So that's 3 million total. This is me back of the napkin, really, really stretching here. It's probably not even close to that. And that's the first year as well. That's bear in mind that would be the first year. And these are dollars. So $3 million. And normally you'd be spending between six to 10. So the ROI on that just back of the napkin calculation is dramatic and that's me bumping everything up so really this is an order of magnitude less absolutely yeah and like i say that's a that's a in terms of the content creation once it's done you know it can sit there obviously you may need to do some but you could also argue with the ct scanner once you bought it it sits there okay it becomes obsolete yeah yeah there's a similar it's a similar well yes and no because it's a four hundred thousand pounds cost to maintain it every year remember as well as the cost of the facilities. Oh yeah, I didn't even I didn't even put that into the costs. <laughs> yeah, and then also the cost of the trainer. But then our, our licensing is the annual thing as well, so it's comparable. Not not the cost of as in how much, but it's a comparable. There's an ongoing piece. Yes, but not content. to the same degree that that's not to be. the same degree because just it, just to have a dedicated room, for instance, that's been properly kitted out to have the trainers. Yeah. Those costs are going to really rack up yeah. after year one. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm taking a look at your website and you guys are helping companies build the content, but ultimately 
they can start to build their own content as this kind of takes off and there's more people in companies that have skill sets that, you know, unity and whatever. So is, is yeah. that the case where people will be able to build their own environments, build their own training, and then host it on your platform for scale? Yeah, there's, so, so the proposition that we have is an SDK um, that uh, any Unity developer can use. We've tried to lower the barrier, barrier to entry there, so you don't have to be a, a really, really experienced developer to get something pretty meaningful in place. We just sell that now so you can get access to the SDK, and then once you've created your content there, you can upload it to the platform, and then that enables you all the distribution, the integration, uh, the data, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, others can create. Depends if you've got that in-house Unity resource at the moment. If not, uh, we can do it for you or we might, you might want to push it out to an existing supplier. We, we don't really mind. Our model is one of moving towards uh, a SaaS business. So we can create the content, but we would really like to create the licenses. I w- on top of that, we've, we're just kicking off a project around what we call non-technical authoring. Which isn't, which isn't really a particularly cool name for it, but it's a functional one. And that is essentially allowing those trainers or those subject matter experts to take a source CAD model and build an entire piece of training around that CAD model without having to do any development whatsoever. They do it all in VR. And we've been working that through for about a year now with a big automotive, one of the big global automotive manufacturers, Sort of working out what the right processes for that are, what the right interactions are. Um, and we've got to the point where we've had that sort of validated across three proof concepts. And so we're now ready to push that into a proper production mode. And we're really excited because obviously that's the big barrier in a way now is, well, how do I create content as quickly as possible? And the more content for us as a platform provider that a customer can create, obviously, the more it's going to be used. And so that's great for us. So we're focusing really hard on those creation tools. I think that's uh, that's the future of being able to allow customers to build their own content because it, it's great that you guys are able to help every customer now when we're in early days. But when every company wakes up to this and realizes the power of saving exponential costs on training, especially in expensive uh, equipment, I think uh, it's going to be a race to <laughs> the problem is going to be one of a, a content shortage and being able to allow companies to to do that themselves is really key in the long term. What is the most important thing businesses can do right now to leverage the power of your platform? Um, I think a big thing they need to do is think about this as a sort of an ongoing program and, and sort of move away from that one off content approach and just think about employing it because it's the latest cool technology. So it's it's really approaching it like they'd approach any business challenge, right? It's like, what is the challenge? What are you trying to achieve? And what is the strategy or the tactics I need to employ to achieve that? And so I think businesses should look at this as, as, as they do with anything else and take that approach and move away a little bit from shiny new technology, let's go do something fun and think about, well, how does this make a difference to our business? How do we deploy it? How do we integrate it? How do we measure it? So it's really taking that longer term view of implementing the technology, what it's going to do and and what it's best at doing. Is there anything else that you want people to know about Immerse before we, we wrap up here? And then I've got one more question for you. Is there anything else that we missed? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, anybody that's that's out there that's looking for a way to uh, scale beyond those kind of smaller proof of concepts or has got a, a VR experiences scattered across their organization, that's the problem that we're looking to solve and do that in a way that enables 
the data to be uniformly and in a standardized manner sort of gathered, collected, and pushed through to those enterprise systems. So, yeah, I mean, we like to think, I think James has already mentioned that we're at a bit of a sort of turning point in the market. We're, we're having that conversation with people now. We were ahead of the market up until maybe even about nine months ago. Um, but things are changing. And so we, we know there are people out there with those problems and we, we love to see ourselves as a, a as a solution to those. So, yeah, I mean, get in touch. So my last question to both of you, and you can be separate, what problem in the world do you want to see solved using XR technologies? I'll go first. Okay. I, um, I think it's that passing on of knowledge. It's, it's a bit back to your point earlier, Alan, when you're sort of saying people are retiring, that sort of knowledge drain. So my view is really you can kind of capture that within the use of VR. So if there's that incredibly skilled trainer who ultimately retires and had a very, very niche ability to do a certain thing and teach a certain thing, well, you can then in effect codify that within the sort of VR environment. It's like it's the trainer that never retires. It's keeping that knowledge. um, And that can even extend right through to incredible artistic skills. Perhaps there's um, a certain way of making something that is is literally something that is is not being passed on and you can actually capture that and you'd be able to have that uh, for anyone to go and look at at any point and actually reignite the interest in a certain sort of uh, artistic format so i think it's preserving skills and i think that's probably the biggest biggest sort of legacy i could see um, this technology bringing to the world at large james has got a good one there I know it's kind of hard to top that one. <laughs> you could just say I agree with no, James. So. <laughs> I have another one. My one is a bit more personal, in that I, I currently travel uh, three to four hours uh, every day. So I I live in Oxford, but I travel into London, and it's a nightmare. So I can see a point in the future where that could change entirely. We're definitely not there yet, but allowing people to work together in a completely seamless way remotely so reducing the need for that travel allowing people to have more flexible uh, working lives and much better work-life balance would be amazing for me and obviously alongside that would come the fact that I've got a friend my best friend who lives in Australia and I'm not very good at talking on the phone or even on Skype and so the fact that we could sort of meet up and play games together and be in a completely virtual space and and that I could feel I was there with him as opposed to being there with like a an avatar or some sort of cartoon version of him would, would be pretty powerful, be a life changer, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's that idea that we can inhabit spaces with people that are in completely different places. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And, and even spaces that don't exist, you can make them up. I know one of the uh, announcements at Facebook's Oculus Connect 6 was their Horizon platform, which is very similar to VR Chat or Altspace or some of these collaboration platforms, but allowing just end users to create virtual worlds. I think we're going to be pushing towards the Ready Player One world where you can go into any virtual world, meet up with your friends and have some fun. Yeah, I feel the same too. The stuff you guys are doing with training and assessment, I think is the practical iterations of this that are going to drive the real long-term value of virtual reality. Because if enterprises get on board and people start to be in, in virtual spaces for work because they have to, that's going to trickle down into consumer as well. Mm, yeah. So with that, I got to reiterate a quote that you guys said, VR creates the trainer that never retires. 
Yeah, it did start off as the trainer that never dies, and then we thought that was a bit macabre. <laughs> we changed it to the trainer, the trainer that never retires. The trainer that never retires. So thank you so much, guys, and thank you everyone for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host Alan Smithson. This podcast is another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing businesses across every industry. You can learn more about the great work that James and Justin are doing at Immerse by visiting immerse.io. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startup studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're on the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -on one-hour -one, one call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.